you're listening to Voices of Value, a selection of valuable insights designed to help you get more out of your professional and personal life through simple and easy-to-adopt life lessons. If you're keen to enjoy a better quality of life at work and at home, sit back and join the conversation with your hosts, Peter Kakos and Rick Rushton. Voices of Value, episode 30. Rick Rushton here with my good friend, Peter Kakos. Pete, welcome. Thanks, Rick. It's great to... To be here, and it's great to um, have yet another Australian gold medalist. Well, if I reflect back from last week when we had Peter Burge, uh, an absolute elite, uh, you know, athlete representing how his humble country. was he? Humble, and uh, <laughs> humble? Uh, I think humble <laughs> just seems to be the consistent thing with all these elites. It doesn't matter who we're interviewing on these uh, podcast interviews, Pete. If they're elite, they're very humble. They certainly are, Rick. And what I love about them as well is we don't quite know where they're going to go. No. We know we're going to get lessons. Yep. But we don't know what lessons we're going to get. So we just ask the questions and some of the stuff that um, that's come up and what you're going to hear today is uh, we're going to go on a journey of absolute professionalism, uh, elite athleticism, yep. as well as some of the best leadership lessons you will you'll ever hear. Absolutely. And I think it's important that our listeners understand we don't script any of this. We don't prepare them with questions. We actually just ask uh, an obvious question at the start and the interviews just flow from there. So if you find some value in this as a leader, if you find some value in this as a peak performer, if you find some value in this as a parent, you're going to hear some great life lessons from our next guest. Can I ask you please to rate the content and most importantly, share it. I mean, if you share it, it gets a wider audience. It gives us more of a compelling reason to keep seeking out these voices of value to share them with our listening audience. Absolutely. So, Rick, by way of introduction, take it away. So, Peter, our next guest is an elite operative who's represented his country over more than a decade and a half in field hockey. Mark Knowles, OAM, is a rare individual in the sense that as a hockey player, he's got all the medals you can possibly get. He's had a gold medal at the Olympic Games in 2004, his first year representing his country. He's won gold medals at the World Championships, gold medals at the uh, Commonwealth Games. Most importantly, has led his country into the arena for his final professional effort, being the Com Games on the Gold Coast. And it's fair to say, as a leader, he gives us a great leadership uh, lesson the way he did that. It is with absolute great honour that we have with us today, Mark Knowles. Mark, welcome. Thanks very much for having me, guys. Nolsey, great opportunity for us just to sort of delve into the mind of someone who's been at the elite level in uh, you know your professional chosen sport, which is of course field hockey, and you know representing your country at, at the big dance as it is at the Olympic Games. But I really want to start off with how does a boy from Rocky end up playing hockey, given all the other opportunities you may have had, given your height, physique, your uh, your, your absolute athletic ability. Yeah, I think uh, oh, hockey is definitely a family sport. I, I grew up with mum and dad being very influential in Rockhampton. Mum um, played state hockey for Tasmania and Queensland, dad for Queensland. You know, older brother, older sister who all played. Um, I guess the other thing for people who don't know much about central Queensland and Rockhampton is, you know, there wasn't a lot of other things to do. There weren't a great range of sports back in the, the late 80s and 90s when I was growing up. Um, we obviously very strong in rugby league in the regional areas in Queensland. Um, I played cricket all throughout my my school uh, school days, but hockey was always the passion. Um, I was certainly certainly addicted to it, I guess, from a young age um, to the point where mum and dad put a tennis court in down the back of our property, but they had to have a sand-based turf on the tennis court so I could play hockey. 
Mm. Um, so, yeah, I just love the game. I guess in some ways that, you know, that was able to put me in good stead moving forward. But I think certainly family and friends were the reason in Rockhampton. Mark, why do you think hockey's been such a, such a successful sport for Australia Given that you know the 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 football, the rugby league, uh, the you know the swimming, the basketball, the cricket, cricket, oh, of course the, the cricket. Um, why why is hockey been such a success for Australians um, at the elite level? Oh, I think Peter, it's a good question. Um, I, I found it really hard to answer all throughout my career, but I guess as I've I've got a little older and I've reflected more and more on what I see now, even being a retired player. One of the things that um, that I honestly believe is that players who play the game and especially who get to the elite level, um, they know there's not a lot extra in it. You know, there's never been any money in the game. Um, the last the last three or four years, yes, if you go and play in the professional league in India, but before that. There was hardly anything in it, um, even to be the world's best player or the world's best team. Mm. Um, there wasn't any significant financial benefits. And I guess what I've seen out of that is that the people who are there desperately want to be there and they really want to get better, not because they'll get another contract or not because they'll uh, get a big sponsor, but mainly because they love the game, normally because their family played it. And they actually just want to be successful. Um, so I think probably in summarising, the people who are there and who are striving to be really great are doing it for reasons, um, you know, very much for the game and for for themselves, not for very many external factors, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's an incredible insight. Absolutely. It's not something that comes top of mind because you did play professionally over in the Netherlands, didn't you? Yeah, I did. I played for five seasons over in the Netherlands, but I love saying that I played professional, um, you know, but I could have earned a lot more if I lived here <laughs> lived here in Australia and just worked. Sure. Um, so it's professional in terms of being a hockey player in the world, um, you know, living over there with your partner or I took my – my son over for the, when he was one year old for my last season. Um, but, you know, a professional contract in Europe, you're making somewhere between 30 and about, you know, maybe $50,000 for the 10 months of commitment that you're over there. Um, oh, so incredible. it's not professional in terms of the money, um, but it's professional in terms of, you know, the club give us a car and a phone and, and you get you know, a couple of nights a week. Uh, we think that's the greatest thing ever. <laughs> well, let's give some context to our audience. You debuted for, you know, your country in 2004. Not a bad year to sort of make that happen, mate, given that that was the one and only time that I can best remember anyway that we actually got the ultimate gold medal. And it just seems to me that every Every time the Olympics is on, we always expect the hockey roos or the kookaburras or call us whatever you want to be called at this games. We always expect us to win because we've always come off a really strong world chance. But in 2004, you sort of got the ultimate. You were in 2007, the young player of the year. In 2014, you were the world player of the year. So we're not just talking someone who, you know, followed a, a family passion and loved playing the game uh, and just saw whether, whether that could take you. Your skill set was recognised globally. And I think that's something to be very, very important. Um, but I think alongside Jamie Dwyer, anyway, is, is there anyone else who went to four consecutive games other than you two? 
Um, yeah, Jay Stacey. Um, Jay went uh, 88, 92, 96, 2000. Um, so he was highly successful as well. And Jay was, I guess, probably the first player who ever inspired me. Um, I've since got to play um, under him as a coach and also against him, um, a, a player coach for Queensland. He's the Victorian state coach. So Jay was the first person, I guess, who um, was my inspiration. He yep. was my first poster I ever had on my wall. And um, yeah, so Jay did um, fall before that as well. Mm. And Rick and Rick Charlesworth was obviously the, you know, he was the guy who kind of, you know, in some ways put hockey um, in the lights early on in his career. He would have gone to five without the boycott. Wow. Uh, he would have been the only player ever to go to five. Yeah. Um, and then obviously so highly successful in his coaching ranks with the with the ladies and then the men after that. Absolutely. I wasn't going to lead into Rick too, uh, too early yeah. into this podcast, <laughs> but since you brought him up, uh, Mark, I'd, I'd love to get a bit of an insight for for a young kid like yourself playing under a guy like Rick Charlesworth. And now Rick's, you know, incredibly well known as a as a great coach, but also as an incredible leader as well of uh, Australian sports people. Could you give us some insights into into how he influenced you, your career, and was he the major influence? Or and talk about other influence as well, if you like. Oh, I think um, for me, I came in or Rick came in as coach in 2009. So I'd been the team with Barry Dancer for five years before that. Um, I guess Barry, uh, well, Barry is the only ever gold medal winning men's coach. Um, And I think Barry is probably uh, my first major uh, inspiration. He was a guy who, um, you know, his absolute passion for the game, his um, respect for for other people, for opposition, for families, um, you know, his willingness to continually do more and drive more was massive for me and very much from um, very similar to my parents. Rick was a little bit different, uh, and I was in a different stage in my career as well. I'd come off um, two Olympics by the time I was 24, a gold and a bronze. Um, I'd Absolutely, I'd hit a bit of a flat patch, and probably our group had. We'd been together for a long time, and Rick was that spark that a lot of us needed. Um, right. I think the biggest difference for Rick um, to any other coach that I've ever been coached by before is Rick just had so much um, faith and belief in his own methods and he basically talked our group into winning. He said, if you just listen to me and if you just do what I tell you to do and if you just be as good as I tell you to be and I know you can be, you'll win. And for a group of guys who'd just come off a disappointing bronze medal at the Olympics in Beijing, uh, it was completely different for us. We thought to ourselves, you have it. You don't know anything about men's hockey. You haven't been a coach of men's hockey for, you know, for 20 years. Um, you've coached the ladies, but you finished in 2000. You can't just tell us that we're going to be good. Mm-hmm. You can't just tell us that we're going to win. And he said, I can. And just believe me. And the more we played and the more we won early on in Rick's tenure, um, like in 2009, we played 29 games. We only lost once. Well, you got a gold and- champions trophy in that year. We did, and then three months later, in March 2010, we won the men's first World Cup for 24 yeah, years. Mm. Yeah, in Delhi. So um, I guess Rick, um, he just had this absolute belief in his own standards, his own model, um, his own way of going about it, and he, he, he honestly did. He talked a group of us guys into changing and to believing in something that I honestly didn't believe in. Um, and that was the biggest thing with Rick. He, that self-belief and self-confidence, it, it 
it flowed through our group in that period of time. Any any key phrases or, or little tidbits from from a Rick Charlesworth that, that sort of stick with you? Oh, Rick's favourite by far and the one I guess we lived by after 2012 when we had a disappointing Olympics, another bronze. But Rick, um, his biggest thing was be at your best when your best is required. And he said, I don't need you to win a game, um, you know, on the Gold Coast against Malaysia. I need you to win the Olympic semi-final. I need you to win the World Cup final. He said, I want you to be at your best when it's required. And I guess in some ways, um, you know, we tried to live by that for for four years from 2009 um, through 10, 11, 12, leading up to the Olympics, we played 170 seven games i think and we only lost nine or ten times um but one of those was the olympic semi Mm. um it was the only game that we didn't want to lose um so rick put a lot of belief we're the only team to win five champions trophies in a row ever we won the world cup we won our fourth commonwealth games gold medal or third commonwealth games gold medal um you know a range of things were done very very well um so, yeah, it's disappointing and yeah. probably Rick took that loss in, in London in 2012, you know, harder than harder than most. And I guess that was the catalyst for us through that 2013-14 period again to rejuvenate. Does it still let you up a little bit, London, 2012, or, or do you more so focus on those champions trophies and so forth? Does that does that outweigh or was that, was that loss no. a, quite a heavy loss? <laughs> Yeah, definitely. Um, the twenty, the two thousand eight loss was bad with Barry because our group was so good, um, and we really we fell apart there. Um, we just weren't connected enough as a group. We played poorly when it was required. Let the pressure get to ourselves in that semi, um, and then four years later. We did come up against Germany, who were um, an outstanding unit. You know, we played them in multiple, or we played them in three World Cup finals in a row. They were the Olympic champions from 08. Um, we beat them in the World Cup final in 2010. Uh, and they just, they were just, they were cleaner. They were better. Um, you know, we made some errors. So I think both of those performances really, um, you know, they hurt. When I look back on my career, I think we did so many things right. Um, but but I'm, I'm, I'm a perfectionist. Most people know that. They know I have extremely high standards of of myself and our team and, and they were moments where we really let ourselves down. Mm. And what you said is what you get. So there's no uh, surprise that you actually got the ultimate in terms of an Olympic gold medal yeah. and the career you had because you set that as your expectation, which we think is, you know, just part of your DNA, mate, which is very evident for anyone who knows you and has had the great fortune <laughs> of hearing you speak as I have. And, you know, I, I'll be really candid with our listening audience. I didn't know a lot about hockey. I knew a little bit about – because for me, we seem to – it's a bit like swimming. We seem to be all over it when it's either, you know, the Olympics or it's Commonwealth Games or it's sort of yep. – yeah, <laughs> Any other time, it doesn't seem to be on the radar as much as it should be. So, um, but hockey was hockey was something from from growing up. It was always a, a sport at the Olympics or the Commonwealth Games. You'd always get up to watch in the middle of the night, uh, wherever it was being played, and so forth. It was didn't know you didn't have to know a lot about it, but I just from a team perspective, from the outside looking in, um, the you know the the hockey roos and uh, the females and yourself, the kookaburras were. Just the, just the environment that you guys seem to create and the camaraderie that you seem to had, you know, we're big on this word culture, Mark. You know, what was what was it like inside the walls of um, of the Kookaburras, and what's it like now inside the walls of the of the Kookaburras and so forth? And um, you know, and what what does the word culture mean to you? 
Yeah, well, I think just touching very quickly on you know on the results and the Commonwealth Games in the Olymp- uh, and the Olympics, we are um, you know we are extremely lucky. We played in a team that was highly successful. We played in eight Olympic semi-finals in a row, and we won seven Olympic medals. The men, you know, then the women had that amazing run. They won three con- uh, three Olympic games out of the four: eighty-eight, ninety-six, and two thousand. So there. There are results that very few sporting teams um, ever get, and uh, I think that builds that builds a reputation around big events that you're going to be there or thereabouts. Um, and I think hence the reason why people get behind it because they know you're a bit of a shot. Yeah. Um, and, and that was always that was always what we were like as well. Mm. Um, I think in in terms of the culture, one of the parts I guess that has helped hockey. Um, significantly is having a national program in Perth um, where you get to build culture on a daily environment and and you guys would know it you know through the football codes and the professional codes but a lot of team sports um, you know in that 80s 90s 2000 era didn't have centralized programs and and weren't able to build that daily and I think one of the things that when I honestly think about teams is that you can't, no matter how good you are, you cannot just switch it on. You can't just say, oh, we're really good and we'll just turn it on at the Olympics. These are these are things that you prepare years in advance. And, you know, when I spoke to the guys after the disappointment in Rio at the end of 2016, the start of 2017, when, when I was in a, you know, in a, you know, and a change definitely in my life, I said, guys, like we're preparing in 2017 to win the Commonwealth Games in April 2018, to win the World Cup in December 2018. You don't just start training in, in September. That This stuff is built over years. And I kind of, I guess for me, I'm so passionate about, um, you know, hockey and high performance and the team and the culture is that you have to constantly remind people that, this is a real privilege. There's such a small amount of people in our community, uh, in Australia, in the world, that get to play at a high-performing level or compete at a high-performing level, then I just, you know, I really love showing the guys every day that this is this is awesome, you know. It's bloody hard, yes, absolutely not going to lie, but it's really good. Um, and I think you just got to continually build that, whether you go ups or downs, you know, I, I saw one of the greatest changes in culture or, or growth in culture that I've seen in my 15-year career, and that was after we come sixth at the Olympics. You know, how does a team get straight back up and say, yes, that killed us, yes, that hurt us, we've got a completely new coaching staff, but we're not going to think about that for the next 18 months. We're not going to dwell on that. Yes, it will be one of the hardest moments when you look back on your career, but do you want to think about that for all of 2017 or do you just want to get straight back on and get straight back to winning, get straight back to normality, to get straight back to being a good team? And in 2017, for a group of guys who maybe couldn't see the end goal of the Commonwealth Games a year and a bit later, they definitely probably couldn't see the World Cup, which was in December. At the end of 18, um, we were able to provide a vision and provide you know, areas of growth every day uh, and say to the guys that this is what it takes and if you want it, jump on. And, you know, I'm really proud that that group of guys did that. 
and clearly you hear it in your voice that you are incredibly passionate about setting the expectations, you know, high that, you know, is aspirational and gets everyone focused in the right area. And, you know, it's not that our aim is, what's the old saying? It's not that our aim is uh, too high and we miss, it's too low and we hit it. So, mm. you know, you're not comfortable coming sort of outside the podium. We, we don't expect that. And so that's part of your culture. The expectation is we will be a high performing team that's going to, you know, deliver on the big stage. And, and just talking about that, mate, and clearly, you know, having the, the, the head of hockey out of Perth now uh, I would hate for our listeners to think that you just sacrificed everything for your you know athletics career and your aspiration to be the very best sports person you could be because you actually made a pretty big decision that I'm hoping you might want to share with our audience in relation to still being the leader of the national team uh, but not being in the center of where the excellence was on the west coast in Perth but in fact uh, from your home in Brisbane where you and Kel were raising your young family yeah, it was a it was a really tough decision. It was um, straight after the Olympics in 2016, and I probably put it in some more context. I'd got to the point in my career where um, I understood that um, the sporting journey doesn't last forever. I was 32 years old, had um, just we just had our third young child, so we had a you know a four, a two, or five, a three five and a two and a baby or something like that and and Kel and I are both central Queensland both Rockhampton kids um, who needed to get back closer to family um, I guess one of the things for me with my decision around this was that Kel had been living over on, on the west coast with without family and you know I always said oh you know I'm away on holidays and playing in Europe and playing in <laughs> India and doing all of these things that, you know, it's really hard for me. <laughs> but we actually knew who it was much harder for with Kel being based in Perth on our own. And, and I felt like it was time for our family to look at life after. Um, I still had such high expectations of myself, um, but I really had to start thinking about someone else. And I think when we are athletes, we do uh, and we can become very self-centered. Mm. Um, so I made that decision at the start of 2016, no matter what the result was, that we would be leaving Perth. Um, I guess it was, um, you know, the spotlight was definitely on because of the poor result in Rio um, of what I was going to do as the leader of the group, uh, an older player, new coach coming in. But we decided that we were going to stick stick with the goals of moving home. And I guess the thing that made it easier for me, uh, and I have so much respect for Colin Batch, the coach who came in, was that Batchy said to me um, in one of our first chats, he said, I desperately want you to still keep playing. He said, you're one of our best players, if not our best player. You're our captain of a team. He said, you've played in this group now for 14 years. I do not need to watch you at training every day. I know by coaching you in your early days, I know by talking to everyone and I know by coaching against you that you have high standards for yourself in terms of your preparation and your body and and those things. And he said, if you want to go home and if you think that it's going to help you keep playing, um, he said, I'd love you to keep playing. And he said, as long as you keep very high standards, as long as you make yourself available for training camps and tournaments, he said, I can't see why you can't play on for years. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess for me, being a 32-year-old um, in an unknown zone, I'd say at the end of 2016, that really gave me confidence that that I was still wanted, that I could still provide value, um, and that I still had a really important role to play, even though I wasn't there every single day telling the guys and showing them what to do. Um, so my leadership definitely changed. Um, the way, I guess, I went about hockey 
and my life and my family changed. Um, but I actually enjoyed um, the last 18 months as much as any time in my in my sporting career. And, yeah. and that's not saying there was anything wrong with the environment in Perth. It was just that I needed something different and I was able to get that. And it probably really set you up for your finale, which we're going to get to shortly. But before we do that, I just love the fact that you never saw yourself as being too big to do the little things well. And no doubt Batchy knew that you had these you know, personal standards to keep fit, to you know, do all the hard yards. You didn't have to be, as, as he said, under his nose to know that you, know, you were going to do all the right things. Are you happy to share the story about your first go at representative hockey when you're chasing your own balls? <laughs> yeah, for sure. That was my first training session ever. Um, I'll put in a little bit of context. I came into the national team as a very raw 18-year-old in 2002, uh, moved over to Perth. The first day I arrived in Perth at the national program with my my heroes, my idols, I broke my ankle. <laughs> um, I did my rehab for four months and my first training session Back after four months, um, it was a Friday morning, freezing cold in the middle of the July. I was allowed to train for the last half an hour. And I did all of my rehab. I did my bike session. I did my boxing. I did my graded running. I had my ankles strapped probably three times as tight as they should have been. thought, I don't want that to happen again. And, and Baz said to me, Nolsey, you're in. Last half an hour, we're playing some games. And I was dead set. I was like this crazy little kid from Rocky. It was like my first game on grass when I was a four-year-old. Um, the boys, you know, they're passing me the ball and I'm running around crazy. I missed a shot at goal and I chased my ball over the baseline. <laughs> and the coach, Barry Dancer and Batchy were on the sideline because Colin Batch was assistant coach at that stage. And Barry yelled out, Nolsey, you don't have to chase your ball. You've got two, 200 balls on the field. I, I actually just thought, you know, that's just what you do in the grass fields in Rocky when I was growing up. If you missed the goal, you went and chased it. Otherwise, someone took the ball. Uh, <laughs> um, so I think, fantastic. you know, they were just moments that I just remember so clearly of, yeah, as I said at the start, I wanted it. Absolutely. I think um, that's one of the things that, you know, those those players that I've seen who were better than me, absolutely, when I was growing up through juniors, they might not have, you know, wanted it as bad or they might not have been prepared to do that little bit extra. Uh, and they're actually the parts that made me the happiest, mm. doing that little bit extra. When I saw everyone on my hands and on their hands and knees after a running session, I'd deliberately just do one more lap, you know. I just, I just wanted that little bit more. Um, and that's something that I guess is you know, been able to keep me in the game. It allowed me to strive for higher standards. And whenever you hit a flat patch, you can always do something else. Mm. And that was, that was the biggest thing that I learned was that when I felt I couldn't play any better, I could always get fitter. When I couldn't get any fitter, I always thought my leadership can improve. When I thought my leadership was going well, I thought I could improve my leadership group, you know. So I guess, you know, that's that's the parts as much as the winning and losing. They're the parts that I guess now I'm taking into my working life and my family life is that there's other ways you can always grow and improve. Tell you what, Mark, you are the epitome of the word professionalism and wise beyond your years, 32, it just speaks volumes that you could be across the other side of a country and still be leading a team from – hundreds and thousands of miles away or well, not hundreds of thousands maybe thousands of miles away it's a long run it's a long run yeah yeah but it's just it's just incredible to hear you talk and the passion and just the the love for it and um 
oh, it's just coming it's coming through loud and clear and just as I said, epitome of of the word professionalism. And that and that led to being, I guess, awarded one of the the biggest honors of any sports person, and that is at a major event to carry the Australian flag. What was that like? Yeah, it was amazing. Um, I will just I will just lead into in some ways moving away from the national program. I um, you know, and this isn't something that I would recommend to everyone, but in some ways it changed the way I saw leadership. Um, it allowed me to go in the direction I was far more comfortable and actually wanted to go in was that I couldn't actually show the guys every single day. Um, I had to, you know, come in for camps. My message became far clearer and it became far powerful rather than just harping and whining every day on all different topics. Uh, I was able to really focus in on key areas of development for the leadership group or for myself. So I guess in some ways moving away helped me as a leader, um, but I think it also helped our group and certainly in speaking with the four others in my leadership group, they absolutely loved having more opportunity to lead and I guess in some ways when I was there I honestly believe I stifled their growth at times uh, and that's something that you know I wish in hindsight I would have had the opportunity or had the knowledge or skills to let go of some of the reins a lot earlier um, but the the absolute honour of being the flag bearer um, yeah, it was one of those one of those moments in your life you just won't forget. Um, I was lucky enough in 2014 at the Commonwealth Games to be the closing ceremony flag bearer, so I had a small taste of it there. Um, what I what I guess you know I am a I'm a country boy. I've never forgotten, and I and I refuse to forget where I came from and who helped me. But I say that because without being in the most successful Commonwealth Games sporting team ever like we've won six commonwealth games gold medals in a row without being in that team for four of those i would never have been the flag bearer so i owe a lot to you know to people who've come before me in terms of the standards they set in terms of you know what was required and how we went about it um and that really helped me um absolutely no doubt um but to be part of that opening ceremony to be such a such an important part and to lead out 450 athletes from australia and another couple of hundred support staff was just one of those moments where um yeah won't won't ever forget that but you didn't actually lead them out as such, did you? I think this really speaks volumes about your leadership journey and then your philosophy about leadership and what really speaks louder than anything else can speak about you. Maybe give our listeners the context about how you actually were the flag bearer and, and your position and, and uh, the order of which you, you did it in. Yeah, well, I think that's, you know, it leads a little bit to how I wanted to lead over a period of time. And I was finally getting to this point where I didn't have to be the person who said and did everything. I didn't have to be that person at the front all the time. Um, and the day before the opening ceremony, I was just in my room, actually, and I just felt like I needed to do something different. Um, and I thought to myself, why do we talk about being one team? Why do we talk about being one nation? Why do we talk about everybody together and supporting through winning and losing and, and all of those things? And then one person walks out the front on their own. I just thought, I'm not comfortable with this. Um, you know, I'm used to walking out 17 players in a hockey team. 
I don't want to walk out on my own. And I didn't tell anyone. Uh, I didn't tell my wife or mum and dad or in the crowd or any of my teammates. And I decided that I just felt that I wanted to be back in the team. Um, I'm lucky I've been part of a team for my whole life. I thought, yeah, I want to be back in the group. So I led the group out for about the first 20 metres until um, I just felt comfortable in, in slowing and stopping and and milling back in the pack with the group. I, I honestly just felt like it was what I'd been working on for the for the past two, three, four years in my leadership of not having to be at the front. Um, but I also wanted others to feel um, you know what it was like just to be to be one team and to be around the flag and yeah so I stopped um, I had a couple of pretty interesting looks had a couple of athletes say to me am I all right did I hurt my hemi or what have I done? <laughs> this flag's <laughs> is heavy shoelace, <laughs> is your shoelace undone what's wrong and I said no nothing I just would prefer to be back here um, my aim honestly um, and a few people know this now but my aim was to walk in the middle of the pack the only problem was was that as I got to the middle, every single time I went to turn and walk with the pack, someone would come up and shake my hand or give me a high five, and I actually felt bad turning my back on the people behind me. So I just thought, well, actually, why? So I just faced the other way. I let everybody walk past. Everybody touched the flag, got to say good day, shake hands, <laughs> high five. And I got all the way to the back with Steve Monaghetti, uh, the chef de mission, and a couple of the other very, very important people in that Com Games Australia team. And I just thought, yeah, how much better is this? Um, and we got to walk back in together. And, yeah, I'm extremely proud that I was able to do that. Incredible um, gesture. But I actually, just, I actually just think it was more me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think the great news there, mate, was you had a great finale to an amazing career to be playing in front of family and friends and, you know, I, I mentioned Kelly, your, your your wife, and you could play in front of her, and obviously, you know, your family um, shouldn't be lost on anyone. That uh, Kelly's got a pretty uh, handy little CV as a player as well, and comes from a, a fairly good stable in terms of her yeah, family, she does. doesn't she? Given who her brother is, I might let you sort of uh, talk about that as we wrap up. But um, I think that finale gave you a chance to to sort of honour a lot of people who supported you along the way as well. Yeah, absolutely, and that was one of the that was one of the biggest driving factors for me was that I wanted to um, to get over the you know the heartbreak and the disappointment of Rio. Um, and Kel said to me when we were talking about it, she said, "Why would you why would you stop playing when you absolutely love the boys, you love the coach, you love the team, and you can play um, until the Commonwealth Games?" Mm. When I decided to play on, I hadn't decided whether it was going to be the Com Games or the World Cup, so I wasn't sure. But she said, why would you ever stop playing before the Commonwealth Games where your family can watch you? And, I mean, I played 15 years for Australia and I played one – yeah, I played two, three major tournaments in, in Australia in 15 years and not many other games. Um, so to have family and friends, you know, 40 minutes down the road from our house in Brisbane was – um, just a beautiful way to finish. Mm. And I guess, yeah, you know, knowing that Kel and her family being Jamie's, um, Jamie Dwyer's sister and, you know, all everything they went through and we went through together as, you know, as great mates, as teammates and now as family was nice to have all of Kel's family in the crowd as well supporting. And, um, yeah, he couldn't, you know, he couldn't really think of a better way. I think I am one of the, one of the very lucky athletes in in sport who get to go out exactly when they want to do it um 100 fit 
absolutely in love with the game. I hadn't, you know, I hadn't enjoyed and loved it, you know, at many other times. Um, in a team that was highly successful, that wanted to be great. Um, so I had a really, really nice end to my career. And I think that certainly helped my transition, um, you know, having a great job to move to after my family and my relationships being, um, you know, comfortable and and excited to move on to new things and and obviously, you know, to be able to win in front of your home crowd, that's the one thing I wanted. And I made that really clear after the Com Games, the opening ceremony. I said to the boys, this bloody awesome boys, hey, like, thanks for supporting me, but please let's go and win now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Mark, you've been an incredible athlete and, and an incredible leader and, uh, and someone who – you know, people from all sports can look up to as uh, as a true professional. What's the next five years look like for Mark Knowles? Yeah, at the moment, I'm just really enjoying my work. I'm the the senior of the personal development unit at the Queensland Academy of Sport. Um, so I'm really, really passionate about athletes' lives outside of sport, um, you know, off the training or the competition field. So we work under some really key um, key areas of career and education, community engagement, you know, professional behaviours, personal branding, thriving athletes. So I absolutely love that I can still be involved in high-performance sport, I'm really enjoying the QAS working. Uh, we work with 24 different sports, Commonwealth, Paralympic and Olympic sports, so I'm, I'm extremely lucky. In my job, um, you know, my wife's happy. She's just gone back to work um, part-time. My kids are in school and in prep um i'm coaching for the first time so i'm coaching the division one men's team in at east in brizzy which is a new challenge for me to to play and coach at the same time wouldn't want to rock up there with bad skin folds i would have thought i reckon, yeah, you'd, be, no, I just, I reckon uh, you'd be all over imagine having mark Knowles yeah, as your coach yeah, my exactly. goodness sorry what time do you we think do. this starts boys <laughs> uh, can i get you anything water a gatorade a watch <laughs> uh, we have pretty high standards at training oh, so I'm it's sure a good group to be part of i can I'm only sure imagine i'm sure you do so no, life life's going really well. I'm you know I'm enjoying doing coaching clinics around Australia and you know sharing my story and um, being able to being involved in you know in different professional codes and I guess just learning for me that's that's the part as I said earlier on. I think if you ever ever feel like you're in a position where you know everything, you, you're done. You're done. Uh, you're destined for failure, and that's one of the things that I'm absolutely I'm striving now. I want to be great in the next part of my life. Mm. Uh, what that is in five years, I'm not sure, but but I absolutely love high performance sports. So I see myself somewhere in this in this area. Well, you've got two crazy podcasters here who absolutely get right off on high performance sport mate we we've loved bringing voices of value in the elite area of afl uh in the elite level of netball um we've you know had the great fortune of interviewing bianca chatfield shani layton both who have uh, experienced you know gold medals at the com games yeah. we've now got you to add to that roster and i've got to say i'm hoping our listening audience understands that when you hear mark talk at the elite level talents right across every field arena or oval what separates the absolute best from those that are just playing the game is that little extra that they do and in mark's sort of language you heard him talk about the fact that he loved doing just that extra lap when everyone thought they'd given their best so if he was doing a weight session you know having lift 10 weights or 10 reps he wanted to do 11 reps because he thought that extra rep would give him 
him the benefit, the extra lap, the little extra that was going to make the, the biggest difference. And as a leader, I love his servant leader story about, you know, it's not about me in front of my family, even though I have the right to sort of take this moment to celebrate what's been more than a decade and a half at the highest level, but he made it all about the team. So I think as a leader, you're hearing here that not, not, you're never too big to do the little things well, go get your own balls. Number two, I think what you're hearing here also is is that it's a little bit extra that's going to make the biggest difference in your career going forward because when it comes tight, and I mean that gold medal story, we could talk about that for a long, long time, Mark, at the Olympics, but that, you know, that was a game that came down to a matter of inches really. So you know, your extra work there as, as the team did was just amazing. But I also love the fact that, and I hope it hasn't been lost with anyone listening here, is to be the best in the world at what you do, it is a very selfish pursuit in some times, but you know, what Mark was able to do it towards the end of it was share it with those he loved the most and really buy into the work-life balance by being away from the day-to-day runnings of the elite program but still being an important cog in that elite program and uh, his ability to step out of the sunlight for a while and let someone else shine in it sort of brought through the, the next generation of leaders in his sport and now he gets the great fortune to to develop the next group of leaders in his sport so you know Mark Knowles uh, wasn't just highlighted for his career in hockey but he is an OAM which doesn't happen without there being some sort of significant contribution right across the his community he is an outstanding leader he still gives today to the sport he loves and the sport that made him and he is someone who has given us a great podcast today where we are of the belief that if you can take those lessons bring them into your world whatever you're doing it doesn't really matter what you are you can be a leader at anything and this man here has given you some of the organizing principles to do just that mark on behalf of all of our audience here at voices of value and peter kakos and myself mate we say thank you so much for the gift of your time and more importantly the gift of your lessons Uh, Peter, Rick, thank you very much for having me. Absolutely loved it. Keep up the great work. You've had some amazing, uh, amazing people on on the podcast so far. And, you know, I just thank you for for inviting me for a chat. Um, So keep up the great work as well. Um, Love hearing it. Love hearing different stories. And, you know, it's about assisting all of us as well. So I learn a lot out of the people I listen to. Uh, and hopefully people get a few of those those messages out of my chat. So thanks very much for having me. Well, you sit right up there with the best of them, my friend. Thank you so much. Thanks, guys. So thanks again for listening to another episode of Voices of Value. And if you like the content, please rate it. Most importantly, please share it because your ability to engage with us across all our social media platforms, it's voicesofvaluepodcast.com, enables us to continue to seek out great leaders, great high achievers, people who can share organizing principles with you. So by all means, please share this with three of your friends. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram. We'd love to have you continue to enjoy the Voices of Value journey. And more importantly, if you know someone we should be speaking to, drop us a line. We'll be very happy to engage with other Voices of Value. We trust you enjoyed listening to Voices of Value, a shared conversation between Rick Rushton and Peter Kakos. Their views are not necessarily those of the wider world, but they should be. If you're keen to enhance the quality of your life even further in the future, you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or your preferred podcast source. Our website is voicesofvaluepodcast.com. And we welcome both your feedback and ratings on the content we provide. Join the conversation again next week when Peter and Rick continue the search for truth, justice, and the value-added way. Voices of Value.